listening to the CIPD podcast series. Hello and welcome to the CIPD podcast series. This month, we're going to be looking at the highly charged issue of executive remuneration. It's a subject which began to receive a great deal of negative media attention as soon as the banking crisis emerged. And as the global recession has mounted, so too has widespread interest in the pay and bonuses awarded to senior executives in every sector, often, it seems, regardless of the success or failure of the organisations they work for. To discuss the current state of play, the outlook for the future, and, of course, the role of HR in the debate, I'm joined now by three experts from the CIPD Reward Panel. Charles Cotton is the CIPD's Reward and Performance Advisor. John Beadle is Global Head of Human Capital Performance at Standard Chartered Bank and Vice President Reward at the CIPD. And Nikki Demby is Principal of Towers Perrin's Executive Compensation and Reward Practice. Thank you all for joining me. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. Charles, we've heard a great deal about director's pay in recent months, not just from the media, but from government, unions, a whole array of other interest groups as well. Most of it, I think it's fair to say, has been intensely critical. How fair do you think most of that criticism has been? I think what is at issue is people are wanting to know how have people got to these large sums of money? What is the link between reward and the performance? Now, um, a few years ago, when the economy was booming, there wasn't a great deal, perhaps, of focus um, so much on, on the performance because it was seen, well, obviously, you can see how the organisation is doing, how the economy is doing. However, in the financial downturn, there has been more focus on director's pay, uh, firstly, in the financial services sector, not necessarily because the, the directors have been held responsible directly um, um, for, for, for the problems. What, what happened is that there may have been some issue around oversight about what some of these traders were doing, how some of these um, people in the, in, in the retail centres were actually selling mortgages, for instance. Um, and then flowing from that, as the rest of the economy started to slow down, people saying, well, during the boom time, you know, we saw executive pay go up. How come now um, we haven't seen a, a, a similar fall in executive pay? Now, if you do look at some of the data, actually, you do start to see that the bonuses that these um, people, individuals are getting um, is going down. Now, one of the criticisms has been from, um, you know, not hastening to add people around this table, but, I mean, you know, some um, commentators or uh, remuneration consultants is the problem is that the media um, or the public or the politicians don't get it. And I think the problem is not so much... With the, with the media or the politicians, I think the problem is that the executive pay has become so complex and that uh, we've perhaps retreated into using such complex language, it's now very difficult to explain to people what we're trying to do and why and how this has a positive impact. So it's about transparency, really, isn't it? I think, John, as, as Charles mentioned, your sector, the banking sector, has been at the heart of this debate. Do you believe there actually needs to be root and branch change in the way executive pay is handled across the board, though? Well, I think we've got to put it in context. I think there's an element of tall poppy syndrome that goes on in this whole debate, um, particularly when you start comparing it to people like journalists or politicians or civil servants. 
Um, I think we, we do have to you know, re-establish the connection between pay and, and perceived performance. Um, and I think in many cases there's been a failure to actually articulate and communicate the rationale for some of the levels of, of payments that have been there. And that's, that is absolutely the fault of the HR community as much as the businesses that they serve. We have a responsibility to do that. I mean, Nikki, as it will not be news to you that remuneration consultants um, have been accused of sowing the seeds of this problem by ramping up pay in the affluent years before the recession. Would you say that's a fair assessment? No, I don't think it's a fair assessment. But, but I think one of the issues that, that we have had is we do have a high level of transparency around uh, director's pay in particular in the UK. And we are one of the few countries where individuals are named in the annual report and accounts and how much they get paid is disclosed in some cases clearly, in other cases less clearly. And wherever in the world higher levels of disclosure have occurred, uh, seeming to be a good thing, we've had the unintended consequence of very rapid pay inflation in that market straight afterwards. And you can see it, if you look back over the last 10 years, every market where um, governance has changed to increase the level of transparency, you suddenly had pay inflation. So it's not just the people who are reading those reports and accounts who are sort of observers who are seeing how other people get paid, those who would compare themselves with other chief executives see how much everybody else gets paid. And that has created its own pay pressure. It's one of the unintended consequences of transparency. And a couple of good examples from other areas would be footballers' pay has gone up since it's become uh, much widely known, uh, much more widely known how, how highly they get paid. And way back when, sort of talking 15, 20 years ago, when the first surveys of investment banking pay were published, that caused its own pay inflation. So transparency actually has some unintended consequences. And that perceived disconnect between the level of pay and the level of performance. I think John's absolutely right. I think collectively we haven't done a particularly good job of explaining how or why people get paid in the way that they do get paid. Um, one of the things that uh, I personally enjoy doing, rather sadly, um, is I enjoy writing remuneration reports to make them clear, to make them tell the story about why pay is being paid in the way that, that it is done. And I, I'm, I'm working on, on one at the moment where I, who's you know, I've been given last year's remuneration report as the starting point. I cannot understand what they do by taking last year's model and um, having to get lots and lots of additional information to be able to explain it in the much improved version. So that's really concerning because if you don't understand it, what hope is there for the rest of us? Absolutely. No, that, 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 that is the point. And I, I think we, we're all um, take a responsibility uh, for telling the story a lot more clearly about why pay, particularly variable pay, is paid in the way that it is and for what kind of performance and making those connections for people. That's our responsibility. And, and building on Nikki's point, I think we are at the stage now where we have to reappraise why we are paying what we're paying, the rationale for it in the context of regulation and, and and pending government influences, and make sure that we've communicated to our stakeholders, whether it be shareholders, whether they be the general public, our own employees, why are we doing this? 
and, and, and do it in, in a transparent and clear manner. And I don't think we're there in many cases. Yeah. Well, I see you bring me neatly to my next point because, indeed, it is all about clarity now, isn't it? And the CIPD is currently producing new guidance on executive pay in the form of 10 principles, I think it is, isn't it, Charles, for organisations to use when they're formulating senior salary packages. Now, obviously, there is a limit to how much detail we can go into in this podcast, but can you talk us through the main points? Well, the thinking behind the CIPD coming up with these principles is to kind of give practitioners and you know, interested parties such as uh, Remco chairs or members of the Remco, um, as well as people in the, you know, the public and voluntary sector, kind of a framework to help them in their thinking, um, uh, in their development of um, executive remuneration policies and their practices and, uh, and, and the structures. And I suppose what we would say is that while there's a number of executive remuneration best practice guidelines out there, you know, they often tend to change quite quickly and tend to focus on a particular industry. I mean, at the moment, and perhaps unsurprisingly, there's a lot of attention in the uh, financial services sector. But what we're doing is perhaps you know, writing it from a perspective of, you know, of, of a practitioner, you know, a reward pr- pr- professional, saying you know, we've, t- um, we've, we've consulted, we've um, talked to a number of reward practitioners about this topic, and they've come up with these general 10 quite high-level principles of what organisations should be working towards. And in some instances, I'm sure many organisations are quite far down the road towards these. In other instances, I'm sure, you know, possibly in the public or voluntary sector among smaller organisations, there's still some way to go for them. So that's the reason behind it. And, I mean, we've got, a, you know, 10 high-level principles, and obviously it'll be on the, uh, take quite a long time to go you know, through all of them. But, you know, for instance, we think, you know, the, one of them would be, the, you know, that the mix of fixed and variable remuneration you know, should be commensurate with um, each executive's role. And, and their level in the organisation and, you know, not lead to inappropriate um, risk-taking, such as that incentives that drive inappropriate behaviour, such as revenue to the detriment of profit. Yeah, I think the um, most important thing about uh, that we've been focusing on in, in developing the principles, as, as Charles has said, is we wanted them to be um, broadly applicable, that every organisation uh, that, ha- that employs and pays people could get some benefit from thinking about them. So we've been uh, very careful to say that the way that you pay people needs to be appropriate to your organisation. There is no one-size-fits-all model, which I think is, is an easy trap that, that people could uh, fall into from reading the, the newspaper, thinking there is a best practice. Uh, there's some best practice thinking, but every organisation needs to think through the model. And so, uh, and, and things that organisations will be thinking about today will be affordability, what's their financial situation uh, and the foreseeable uh, future prospects. Who owns the organisation? Uh, is it owned by uh, shareholders in, in, in the public market or is it uh, in the voluntary sector, one which is very much set up uh, with uh, not-for-profit objectives? Uh, and those need to be taken into account in, in working through um, how best to pay people. And then, no matter what the organisation's objectives are, what are the talent 
uh, implications. Who are the people, the skills, the capabilities, the experience that need to be brought into that organisation to help that organisation be as effective as possible in achieving those objectives? profit-making or not profit-making. And all those important pieces of context need to be brought to bear in thinking through the reward agenda. And it's very easy to forget those. Yes. Uh, one of the principles we've been talking about is that those that are involved in decisions in this space need to have access to um, uh, appropriate independent advice. Uh, and, and while that is valid, um, I think it's important for us in the HR community to be aware that Despite having advice and access to advice, we need to continue to act as a conscience to the CEOs and the board on HR issues generally. And reward is no different. Um, we need to stand up and be counted um, on these issues. And it does require a degree of personal courage and a degree of personal integrity. And it's a particular challenge in, in certain sectors, in a certain environment. But if we're talking about what HR brings to the party, it needs to have the skills in order to take part in the debate and it needs to have the, the personal courage to stand up and be counted in those discussions. Yes, Charles, I'm interested in your thoughts on that, because I think it, it probably is fair to say that in many cases HRs have perhaps failed to stand up to their CEOs on this issue in the past. Clearly it's a very loaded issue now. Do you think they will stand a better chance of doing so in future? It rather depends on how the HR department is viewed by the organisation in some instances, the HR department or the reward function is seen as a, almost an execution-only department. Not physically, I hasten to add, executing people, but actually executing the reward policies and principles that have already been devised for them. Actually, they've all been said, you know, this is the answer, now go out and implement it. In other organisations, the HR department actually is seen as important in helping create um, and add value to, uh, to, to the company. And hopefully going forward, we're going to see more organisations taking that approach with the reward and HR um, departments to ensure that what the organisation is trying to achieve with this executive reward actually is adding value to the organisation. And that does involve um, not only HR having you know, the guts to, to stand up to the chief executive and actually saying it how it is, as far as they perceive it, but also themselves equipping themselves with the necessary skills and knowledge to be actually be able to enter into a debate about what the organisation is about, what is its corporate objective. So they can actually reposition themselves in that debate. Yes, and so they actually are seen almost as a valid party by the organisation because these people are speaking the language of business and they have got the, um, the credibility to take part in it. John? Just to make a slightly contentious statement, I think one of the issues in our field is that part of an average HRD's career progression isn't necessarily through the reward community. And actually, if, if, uh, if their career path hasn't taken them through reward, then it's in everyone's interest for them to get versed in this space before they are taking on a board position and having these kind of discussions. Because it is very easy to step aside and allow others, including the independent advisors, who clearly are skilled in the area, to just occupy the space. And that's not a healthy situation for an organisation. So what you're saying, it's rather balls in the court of HR on this. Yeah. And, and HR has, as Charles said, a, a very big responsibility to make the remuneration committee work well. 
So the role that the HR function needs to play is to ensure that good quality decisions can be made, is the right information needs to be provided to the committee, it needs to be provided in a timely form. There needs to be a good two-way interaction and conversation going on. I think it's very poorly understood um, outside organisations that whilst the actual decisions are made in remuneration committee meetings, there is a lot of work goes on in advance. And if good quality work isn't allowed to happen, so there's good processes around the committee, you ensure your committee is well-trained, up to speed on current developments, then you're not really supporting them in the way they should be supported to enable them to make great quality decisions. And, and that's a responsibility of HR too. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. Let's talk about the specifics of some particularly contentious areas and one that springs very much to my mind John is clawback we've seen an enormous amount of coverage about this haven't we where, where organizations have attempted to claim back part or all of a bonus awarded in one year if it subsequently emerges that action is taken you know have had an adverse effect in, in future years what are your feelings about that I think it's uh, I think it's interesting in several respects some organizations have clearly had clawback for some years and it's in the perform of performance related stock uh, if, a, if an organisation doesn't meet its long-term goals, the long-term incentives do not vest and therefore major parts of remuneration that were on the table have been taken away. So I would argue that clawback in some form has existed for a very long time. Should it continue to do so? Uh, I think there, it is inevitable. I think there is no alternative in the sense that uh, every, albeit conflicting guidance that's came, come out of, of shareholder bodies or regulators have said that this is an absolutely key aspect of, um, of remuneration design. Um, if we uh, if we focus in on, on clawback of, of bonuses, of course, we know, again, if there has been some real thoughtful planning in creations of bonus pools and taking into account things like economic profit, um, then there is less need to actually engage in some difficult, if not very costly, and legally, um, legal minefields um, in, in clawing these pieces back. So the, the planning up front in terms of things like uh, decisions on bonus pools, even before you get into the distribution of bonuses, I think is at the heart of trying to square this particular circle. So it's not the principle you have any, any issue with, it's the process, it's, it's the specifics of how you do it. Yeah, I, I think in summary a lot of organisations are doing it and may not even be aware of it. Um, and secondly, uh, there can be a lot of thought in the upfront design of creating bonus pools to distribute in the first place that mean you don't need to go down the legislative route um, thereafter once you've distributed. I mean, Charles, this is all part of the wider question about the link between reward and risk, isn't it? The fact that banks in particular, perhaps rewarded excessive risk-taking, has been widely covered. How can organisations strike a sensible balance between motivating appropriate levels of risk-taking, which is clearly desirable, and sustaining long-term high performance? I think you organisations perhaps almost need to step back. I mean, you could almost say that they focused on the reward and then worked out the performance. That's needed to justify it. Um, I think what going forward, organisations need to start thinking, well, actually, what are we trying to do with this element of the reward package? Are we trying to recruit people? Are we trying to incentivise them? Are we trying to motivate them? And sometimes there seems to be confusion. So you may have... Um, something like you know a deferment 
is that actually to encourage somebody to stay with the organisation, or actually is it linked to um, performance, and is it you know part of part of both? But just to t- you know, touch on what John was saying, I think there's also you know confusion amongst again among um, among the public about what clawback actually means. And many of them will actually think it's actually clawing money out of people's account once it's been paid, which obviously is very difficult to do. So I think what John's point is very valid is that actually before you start kind of moving, you know, sort of um, looking at this, you've got to think, well, actually, what could go wrong? What are the risks? What do we need to start um, looking at to ensure that we don't end up in such a situation um, going forward? And, you know, similarly, when you're talking about um, redundancy packages, severance packages, thinking that quite clearly up front rather than suddenly having to respond if your chief executive doesn't work out the way you you know thought um, they would work out or possibly have done a good job but actually the environment has changed and it's you know it, it's time to uh, to say good, to say goodbye to them we are doing some research in this whole area around how organizations identify manage and measure and mitigate risk and i think what we'll see is more uh, 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 not only a focus, which there is at the moment on the process of reward, but more so around the um, the behavioural aspects as well. What um, behaviours are we trying to uh, encourage? What values are we trying to encourage? And are we actually inadvertently um, encouraging the wrong behaviours and the wrong performances and the and the wrong values? Well, as you say, it, it is about being clear about what you're actually rewarding. But Nikki. I mean, when we talk about remuneration packages, this, this is a big thing, isn't it? We're talking about pay, incentives, pensions, benefits, severance, as Charles has just said. Where do you think we're going to see the biggest change? Well, at the moment, it's quite hard to know where the biggest change is going to, to happen. Um, one of the questions that we're asking uh, at the moment is, you know, is the current system broken? So the exactly the, the model that you've described of base salary, short and long-term variable pay and benefits, is that model broken? And as we're talking to people, both those um, uh, in, in employers but also in institutional investors, the, the general consensus is no, the model isn't broken, the fundamental model isn't broken. Uh, there's quite a lot of evidence that the model is working, exactly as John said. You know, long-term incentives are not paying out or paying out at much lower values when the share price goes down. You know, bonuses are going to come down in 2009 uh, in direct reflection to how businesses performed. Bonuses were generally pretty good in 2008 because the performance for that year was was very good. So it's the lag that people, the wider public don't understand. The lag is an issue, but the other thing, exactly as Charles has said, is to um, make the system work better. That's what everybody's focused on now, is how can we make the system work work better? Not rely on clawbacks, exactly as John and Charles have said, but to design better incentives in the first place and to make sure that they are focused not just on the um, what of of the results that are produced, but the how as well. So there's some very interesting work uh, being done at the moment on uh, using lead indicators, so things like market share, employee engagement, things like that, which are not just financial metrics. They are hard metrics. It makes me very cross when people call them soft metrics because they're hard metrics, but they're not financial metrics. And trying to see if we can measure more holistically business performance so that pay is reflecting more accurately a wider perception of how a business is doing. So it's a much more sophisticated approach. Um, it will be. And uh, that is a challenge uh, for everybody in HR because everybody has to raise their skills in this area. And one of the, uh, uh, 
even though I'm a consultant now, I've, I've worked in, in the reward function in a business uh, myself in the past. And one of the issues with re internal reward functions becoming highly skilled these days is that there is a tendency for um, HR generalists or HR business partners, as they're called in some businesses, um, to uh, think they don't need to know very much about reward. It's a kind of, you know, delegation to the experts. And the trouble is, is it's normally glowing in the dark by the time a problem gets to the reward function. And uh, we would have uh, much, much better and quicker business answers if HR business partners uh, built their own capability in this area to spot the issues earlier. Don't need to know how to solve them, but to identify them. So they stop firefighting. Yeah. Charles, we're coming to the end of our time. Before we close, um, I would like to ask you all your thoughts about what executive pay is going to look like in five or ten years' time or whether you actually think we will see fundamental change in the way this is looked at once we get out from under the existing economic chaos. What's your thought about that? I think it goes back um, to what um, Nikki was talking about earlier. Um, it's about what the corporate purpose, you know, what the purpose of an organisation is and from that the remuneration practices flow and from talking to, you know, the investors and the, um, it doesn't seem to be the case that they think uh, the model is broken. It just needs to be um, re-examined, revitalised. And if that is the case, then I think the typical structure will, will, will remain Though there will be, you know, increasing emphasis on performance, trying to link um, reward to performance, increasing emphasis and actually deferring um, reward elements. The issue is whether you know, the investment community or society as a whole think that perhaps the corporate purpose is actually going to change rather than focusing on maximising shareholder value. It may perhaps go back to perhaps a longer-term perspective that there used to be in the 40s, 50s and 60s, just as the focus on the long-term creating an, you know, an organisation that creates value over time for the investors, in which case you may actually see um, a shift. You may see a, um, a change in reward approach. You might see salaries becoming um, increasingly more important and perhaps um, short-term bonuses um, less important, but you know, longer-term investment plans will become more significant. John, what do you think? I mean, we always talk about long-term thinking, don't we, during recessions, and everyone has lots of good stuff to say about it. And then when we see an upturn, it, it tends to fall away, doesn't it? Well, I guess um, my, my fear, if I look ahead, um, is that we increasingly get pushed down what I'd call a cookie-cutter approach, where we are highly constrained by often conflicting regulation uh, in terms of what we can do, and therefore the degree of innovation and the degree of, of, of appropriate solutions we can give to our businesses are very limited. My hope is that actually, if you look, the organisations that have come through um, the recent storm most successfully, I think, have had HR at the heart of their business. The leaders in it have shown a high degree of integrity and challenge. And I think that shows that um, if, um, if HR is well constituted and well positioned, it can actually be a very successful contributor to a business and avoid some, some major issues. Nikki, are we going to see a fundamental shift, do you think? Um, I, I really just want to build on what uh, Charles and John have said. I, I think we will not only be looking over the longer term, uh, as Charles referred to it, in terms of business, but the longer term employment proposition as well. Um, we have some very significant issues about the future of uh, post-work 
pay is going to look like uh, in, in the UK, around what retirement is going to look like. I think we're going to have to take a longer-term view about how executives are, are building their wealth. And there are some quite interesting models that have been used by a handful of companies around the world um, called something like, uh, typically called something like career shares, where rather than long-term incentives, vesting after three years, as we typically have in, in, in this country, um, people have to hold shares in their company for their career. With, with that company. And goodness gracious me, you know, will that mean that your ultimate wealth reflects the values that you created? Yes, it will. It's actually a very simple mechanism as well. So one of the things, like John, I fear desperately that regulation will pu push us towards cookie-cutter, inappropriate solutions. We're already on the verge of that even before the recent credit crunch. Um, and my, my aspiration is that we will have simpler remuneration that is right for business and right for the talent strategy that that business has to make it all happen. Thank you all very much indeed. That's it for this month. Many thanks to my guests. If you'd like more information on executive remuneration and a detailed copy of the executive reward principles we've been talking about, you'll find everything you need in the show notes which accompany this podcast. And remember, if you are a CIPD member, you can discuss any of the issues we've been looking at on the communities page of the website. You'll find that at cipd.co.uk slash community. Thanks for listening. Join me again next month. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series.